this is Sarah Zar, and you are listening to This Creative Life. Find out more about the podcast and all the episode notes at our new home at thiscreativelife.substack.com, where you can also learn about the annotated Courageous Creativity audio I'm making for subscribers. And one last note for anyone who was a Patreon patron in 2020, it would be amazing for both of us, <laughs> if you go and cancel your patronage of this creative life, Patreon will not let me delete active patrons. And I've moved everything over to Substack and I'm just sort of shutting down the Patreon side. And as you probably noticed, I haven't actually run the um, Patreon payments for a few months. So, but I'm having to go in manually every month and say, don't charge people. So if you could delete your patronage, that would help administratively. Um, yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. Uh, my guest today is Maureen Gu, author of four novels for young adults. Most recently, Somewhere Only We Know. She is a cat mom and she's also now a human mom, meaning the mom of a human baby. <laughs> Uh, among other things. Welcome, Maureen. Thank you. Hi. Hi. Uh, so this is Wednesday, January 20th, as we as we record. Mm -hmm. It is inauguration day. We're recording yeah. after. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we were like, let's just put a pin in this and see how it goes. Uh, but it happened. So how are you? Did you watch? Would you like to process it a little bit? I would like to. Yeah, let's do it because I feel like I went from the from CNN live coverage to hopping on this call. So um, I'm so relieved. I feel like a unclenching of my whole body. <laughs> um, you know, not that I think this is going to solve all of our problems, but uh, it's a really big step in getting rid of one of them. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And yeah, I was watching it with my son, who you mentioned, um, the human baby, and uh, he had just woken up and we we're out there. And it was so nice just to know that he does not have to be a toddler or like a little human under Trump, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I feel good. I feel nervous. You know, I every time we've all been excited or relieved, some shit hits the fan, like mm -hmm. literally immediately after. So, you know, but I'm glad, I'm glad that, uh, it's done. And I feel just like, all right, let's everybody try to move on and not focus on, you know, a white supremacist president. And, you know, hopefully I can get some work done. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think that's a good summation of how a lot of us are feeling. Probably. I, yeah. I've been extremely cynical and numb, like a lot of us. Uh, and I was, I wasn't even planning to watch the inauguration, to be honest. I was just like, I just can't anymore. Like just swear him in, in some simple ceremony and like, let's just move on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but then I turned it on. I woke up this morning and I was like, I saw a picture of, um, there's a AP photographer I follow on Instagram and he had posted a picture of Trump's helicopter flying away. <laughs> and I was like, oh, the, I am going to watch this. <laughs> that yeah. did feel good to see. I am going to watch it. And um, I'm glad I did. And I'm, I'm glad nothing happened. Although, like you said, who knows? I'm always prepared for anything. But I do feel a slight like, I mean, I think a lot of us are realizing or have known. It's not like we suddenly realize it. But 
the last four or really I'd say five years have been so traumatic around this personality and the power that he had to make the world a tangibly worse place Mm -hmm. for everybody. And it's been traumatizing and it's been, you know, you just question your sanity through the whole thing. And so I've been pretty numb and, um, but I think just grappling with, it's going to take a while to realize like, oh, things are a little better and I can feel like things are a little better. Just like it just struck me like an hour ago, like, oh, we're going to start having White House press conferences again where it's not just like lies. Yeah, <laughs> like there's going to be like- actual information instead of disinformation and misinformation. Okay. And like that alone, like something in me leapt for joy at that of just like just something where it's like give me some truth you know yeah and I I felt like you too I didn't think I would really want to watch the inauguration you know I, I just thought it's something we have to do to like move along right and get Biden in there um but then when I watched it I was so into it <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was texting people about everybody's coats, um, checking all the funny memes because I felt like there was this moment of, I was saying, oh, Twitter is joyfully funny for a current event, which is, has been so rare. You know, mm. there are all these amazing memes with Bernie sitting there in his mittens and, um, you know, just like all sorts of funny things. And I just felt this relief, like, oh my God, I can joke about this. I can appreciate it. Um, you know, I... I also, yeah, I'm just really glad to know somebody tweeted about um, Obama being overheard talking to Liz Warren saying like, oh, I have some ideas. Let's talk soon. And I was like, oh, my God, they're in charge again. You know, like people who actually care about the country and want to do stuff. Um, You know, I'm not I'm not that cynical, but I'm also not, you know, uh, deluded about Mm -hmm. everything's going to be better tomorrow. Um, But. Yeah, it's just this thing that no longer sucks our energy or hopefully will no longer suck our energy in the same way. Because you can disagree with whatever the government's going to do from now on, which I'm sure all of us, there will be lots of things that we don't. Yeah, and protest and be angry. Like all of that is fine. I disagree with Biden when he says like, we need to like, like whatever he said about anger, like letting go of anger. I'm like, anger (laughs) is good. Like we need anger. (laughs) I know. I'm like, that's yeah i'm korean i'm gonna be angry and harness it and uh, you can't tell me not to be angry but i appreciate the sentiment but no yeah um you know so yeah it'll be it's just going to be a thing that we don't somebody tweeted um i think it was aro kwan the author she said something like you know shout out to all my fellow anxious people who can stop trying to stop the plane from crashing with their mind Mm. and that's totally god that hit me on so many levels as a person with anxiety anyways yeah i am happy i i was like i don't know what headspace i'll be in for this podcast and i'm like feel good (laughs) it is it's hard like just that yeah that feeling of like allowing myself to feel some happiness and hopefulness because i do like you were saying like i'm not deluded there's a lot of issues biden wasn't my guy you know whatever i'm very i feel very tepid about him and and there's a there's a thing that happens on social media like you said there's positive things about the group experience of an event and there's also an aspect of a group experience that can detract from it because you always have 
people also expressing their displeasure mm-hmm. or their skepticism, which is fine. And I do that too. But I've, I've realized like I've kind of tamped down my own hope because I think about how deeply the systems are broken and how, you know, all of those sorts of thoughts. And so then I, I, I notice when I have a hopeful thought, I'm like pushing it away, just going, you can't, <laughs> you can't feel hopeful about that because everything's still broken and bad. And then I'm like, yeah. no, I'm gonna like feel good about the fact that we elected our first female vice president. Mm-hmm. And I want to feel good about the end of this aggressive disinformation. I want to feel good about the amazing Amanda Gorman. Oh, so great. Who that was the only time I cried. Like I teared up a little when Kamala Harris was getting signed in, but I tears fell down my face during the poem. I'm tearing up now. So anyway, (laughs) I know. I mean, I started tearing up when, officer Eugene Goodman showed up I was like Ooh, and then it was Kamala and I was like oh god and then yeah the I didn't realize I was brimming with emotion mm-hmm. going into it and then I realized oh my god because I didn't cry when Biden won the election um I didn't cry when I saw Kamala give her speech at you know her acceptance speech or I don't know if it's called an acceptance speech for the VP but her speech but then this inauguration because I kind of felt like it felt real and it was happening and okay uh from this point on nobody can stop them from becoming the president and the vice president so Mm -hmm. yeah and the poet the poet laureate um she's from LA too so I just felt this extra yeah I just felt this extra pride in her yeah (laughs) well speaking of of that um let's get into you and your books and I hear your son. So if any time, no, it's, that's <laughs> totally, I was just going to say, if you ever need to like pause and go get up, uh, just let me know. I um, have my mom here to, okay. <laughs> for baby duty, but he may be loud enough to be recorded. So sorry. It's, he sounds wonderful. <laughs> um, so yeah, let's start. I, I don't do this with every guest, but I'm curious. I like to, I don't always go back to childhood. Sometimes I just sort of pick up like, how did you you know, first start writing. But I'm curious, take us back to your childhood. Did you grow up in California? I did. Um, So I was born and raised in LA. Uh, Let's see, I moved to like a suburb of LA when I was really young and grew up there pretty much. And my parents still live there, uh, which is 10 minutes away from where I currently live in Los Angeles, which is why it's really nice to have my mom be able to uh, bubble with us and help with childcare. Um, So yes, I grew up in LA and I loved reading from an early age. So that's kind of it. You know, when people ask me like, how did you become an author? What got you interested in writing? And it's books, pretty simple. I just really loved reading. Um, Although the path from loving to read books to becoming an author was very uh, not straight and obvious Um, because I didn't really consider being an author until I literally sold my book. What? Okay. Before we get to that, Mm -hmm. I want to know some of those early reading memories, some of those formative books. And do you remember, you know, whether those are books, I find that that middle grade age of reading was probably the most prolific 
waiting time for all of us Mm -hmm. and what like you remember from that age. And then I'm also curious if you remember the first like young adult book or books you read where you're like, you can write about teenagers in real life. Yeah, it's I also firmly agree with you with the middle grade category. Those are the books that stuck with me forever. Anyway, the ones that, cause people often ask like, Oh, you write YA. What books did you read as a teen? And I'm always kind of like teen in high school. It was a lot of required reading, you know? And, um, I don't even remember how, which books I loved in high school, but the middle grade years were so was when I was so obsessive or, books for my life and where I remember like the tactile details of every bit of the world building in the babysitter's club or yeah. uh, Romana Quimby or Little House on the Prairie, uh, Anne of Green Gables. So I'm listing the books. So the books that really number one made me a reader uh, were the babysitter's club books, um, mm-hmm. which I discovered when I was seven, I think, or eight. And uh, I still remember my best friend from Burbank, Erica Sampson, let me borrow them. And I became a reader then. I didn't love reading before that. Um, not that like five-year-olds really love books, but mm-hmm. I just, I, it wasn't like a thing until I read The Babysitter's Club. And then that just blew open. I mean, I read everything I could. I would read the books in my house that weren't meant for me, you know, that looked mm-hmm. like a novel. I'm like, what is this? The Good Earth by Pearl S. Buck. <laughs> my dad's like, okay. Go um, for it. Yeah. And I, I even read like Lee Iacocca's <laughs> memoir that we oh had. Oh my gosh. I remember when that was like <laughs> right? the huge bestseller. That's so funny. Because <laughs> it, it came with our encyclopedias. <laughs> and it was just one of the books we had lying around. And then, you know, my parents, we, we weren't um, like super well off, but we weren't basically I never got to have toys. Uh, my parents were not believers of buying their kids toys. <laughs> They're like, I why do you need toys? Can't disagree. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, just go outside. But the one thing that they were very, um, open to was buying me books. So that was like a luxury and I would buy them nice. at Costco. Back then Costco was called Price Club. I remember Price Club. Yes. yes right? Cause I'm also a California kid and it was Price Club. Yeah, it was Price and Club. I remember hearing about it at school. I think how it came to my consciousness was a girl in my class. <laughs> I still remember her name, Robin. She came to school one day with like a whole um, case size box, you know, like a box of like a dozen, like normal size Reese's peanut butter cups like the thing that has two Reese's and I was like your mom just like let you buy a whole like 12 pack display case of Reese's peanut butter cups like there's a store where you can do that and you're like yeah it's the price club it's like oh my god I forgot the yeah, books <laughs> that was my dad's like hobby and it's actually the tragedy of the pandemic is he can't go to Costco and- that's my father-in-law but Trader Joe's Oh, oh, Trader Joe's. I know. I'm really sad about that one. But I would get the Babysitter's Club books because they were sold in sets of three in these little um, cases and or box sets of three. So every time a new, I don't, I think they, they had been out for a while by then, but they were being released in these three. So like, I'd have to wait a couple of weeks till the next set was out. Um, so I was obsessed with those. And then I just became, yeah, prolific reader. And I'm looking at my bookshelves right now because I saved all my favorite middle grade books. Um, so yeah, Little House. I was joking around with a couple of my author friends. Like I just loved like little white girls living in the country. You know, I <laughs> like Caddy Woodlawn, Little House on the Prairie, Anne of Green Gables. Um, 
I loved anything in series form. I really got addicted to series. Um, a lot of stuff, which, you know, now is probably pretty problematic and flawed. But at the time, I loved like Indian in the Cupboard. Um, anything that was like, oh, yeah, the Romana Quimby books I really love because I really related yes. to her. Being, oh, me too. So she was like so petty and, you know. And <laughs> did, like, you have a, did you have a sister? <laughs> I did. But an I older was the one? older one. I was the older oh, one. You're... See, I... I had an older sister whose personality was just like Beezus. Oh. And I was the Ramona who couldn't control my temper and was like <laughs> impulsive and dirty and all that. And my sister was like, I don't, she just had this amazing control of her emotions and temper. And so she just liked to watch me like lose my <laughs> shit. <laughs> just be totally imperious about it. Um it was infuriating. Anyway, well, you related to Ramona as well, sounds like. I did. Because, well, I, even though I was the older sister, I too had a temper. My sister was way more easy and kind of shy. And she was like the easy good kid. And I was like the emotional turmoil, like the one that <laughs> the was future always, writer. Yeah. The one that would like <laughs> slam the door and it was misunderstood. Um, so yeah, those, you know, I kind of, all of those books were so formative for me. Um, and then as far as young adult and being aware of kind of the young adult category, I mean, I would say I read R.L. Stein. I feel like R.L. Stein was the closest thing, I, the Fear Street books to like YA from when mm. I was younger. Um, but it was when I was 20, it's like right out of college, my cousin was like, I think you like, you like these teenage books, right? <laughs> Which, you know, I don't remember, but I guess like I had still been reading some of the old books that I loved. And so my cousins for my birthday, when I turned 23 years old, got me The Princess Diaries. Oh. Yeah. And I looked at it and I was like, what? I got kind of annoyed. Like, this is what you think of me. You know, I'm, I'm actually, 23. Yeah. Hello. I'm like, excuse me. I'm reading Zadie Smith and, you know, Excuse Dave me. Eggers. I read literature. Yeah. And I do have like a very... Um, I studied English Lit as an undergrad. I eventually took MFA classes. I wasn't an MFA student, but like I took those classes. I had a very snobby literary understanding of myself, right? Mm -hmm. But then I read The Princess Diaries and I immediately felt this connection with on a craft level because I had been writing a lot of essays and I just thought I was going to be a journalist or, you know, uh, a blogger or something, you know, like something nonfiction. I didn't really think I would ever write fiction. And I was applying to grad school programs at the time. Two of them were journalism. One was uh, publishing and one was uh, the new school program for a young adult writing young adult literature. And so for the, for the new school application, I needed to write a sample and I didn't know what I wanted to write. It's really strange that I applied for that program because I didn't actually have any idea yeah, what I wanted like to do with really that. Yeah, it sounds like you didn't really know the category that well either. Yeah, it just interested me. I knew there was something that was drawing me to it. And part of it was how, how we're talking about books when we were younger impacting our lives. I just knew I wanted to work with books somehow. I think that would be interesting in the children's book area. So I thought I'm going to apply to Emerson to become a children's book editor. Or maybe I'll apply to this program. Like to me, it was kind of like on a lark or that's like how I felt about it at the time. And then 
and I didn't know what I wanted to write. So I was in the middle of trying to figure that out when I got the Princess Diaries. And that voice and that kind of fun story grounded in reality, but not really, you know, it was like this silly, aspirational, but also romantic and sweet and emotionally real. All of it was just, it just hit me. And I thought, oh, this is what I want to write. And so... Mm -hmm. That's what I wrote. I wrote like the, basically what ended up being the first chapter of my first uh, published young adult novel, Since You Asked, and turned that in as the application sample. That's the title of it, Since You Asked. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah it's called Since You Asked. That was my first book, came out 2013, which is nuts because I applied to grad schools in 2004. So it mm. was like, I ended up going to Emerson's program and be, because I thought it was more practical. I got accepted in I mean, I'm not saying this as a brag. I got accepted to mm -hmm. all the programs I applied to. And I thought, okay, I want to go to Emerson because it's the most practical, it's pairing the most practical job with, and because I thought, what am I going to do with a creative writing degree? I'm not going to be an author. So um, I finished that program and then I kept working on that book and that's eventually sold it, but it was uh, really weirdly passive journey to get there. And when I think about how it all came together, I think I don't give myself enough credit for, per, for persisting. And right. Like you, you know? can say like, it's weirdly passive, but, mm -hmm. and, and, and it, you might feel that way internally. If you can, you know, you're comparing it to the way other people talk about their experience, Yeah, but there's no way that getting a book published is a passive experience and like right. getting a book to the point where it can be published. I mean, it's, you made that, you know, you did your part to make that happen. So. Yeah. And I also have discovered that I think I did have that dream. Um, I was just protecting myself from, mm. from it, like the inevitable disappointment. Yeah. You know? So. Yeah. I, I think that's, <laughs> one reason it took me a long time to I could say it to myself that I wanted to be a writer but it was a long time before I told anyone else that I was working mm. on that in a serious way out of that protectiveness I guess and and even like the few people that I did eventually tell it was still a long time before anything happened with my career and so I did endure like How's the writing going? When am I going to get to buy your book? <laughs> kind of questions. It's just, like, oh, God, don't ask right. me that. Um, I know. It makes you so vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. It can be scary. And I think, you know, probably for women in a in a way that's a little different than it might be mm -hmm. in a in a man's experience. But you're I, I, this is a question I have. I may as well ask it now. Um, your husband is also like a creative professional. So. What's it like having two writers and storytellers in the house? Has that been like an overall positive? Is it a big part of your relationship? Do you share work? How does that yeah, go? I, I always feel like when I answer this question, I sound like one of those deluded Pollyanna married ladies, but it's, we, our relationship I think is best when we talk about our when we talk about creative stuff, it's, I would never think that because I, I would think there'd be friction or I'd be a little more protective of my work. Like I don't want to hear my husband's 
two cents, you know, <laughs> but he, I give a lot of credit to my husband. So I, I started dating him right before all this grad school stuff I was telling you about. And he encouraged me. Um, he and I were just raised so differently. You know, I was raised in the Korean immigrant house. I was pretty pragmatic, but, but not like I wasn't expected to be a doctor or anything. It, it's just more like I was kind of left to my own devices to figure out my life, you know, mm-hmm. and my husband was so nurtured and um, supported by his parents with what he wanted to do and just kind of felt he felt special from the day he was born you know that kind of thing where you're like wow a lot of positive reinforcement your whole life clearly um but he brought that to me you know and um I so I felt very supported in a way that I hadn't not that my parents didn't support me but they didn't get it I I know what you're saying it wasn't like a lot of active um, active support basically yeah, yeah yeah they supported me by you know i i went to grad school in boston and they helped me pay my rent a few months you know like they mm-hmm. they worried about me you know they were like okay i guess you want to do this thing they always kind of trusted that i knew what i was doing mm. um so anyways yes my husband has always been my biggest cheerleader for my career and sometimes when i talk about it I, i'm a little like i feel a little embarrassed cuz it sounds like i it just sounds so like my husband's the best, but like in this one area, he truly is from, you know? Um, and so we, we, when we met, he wasn't a storyteller. So right now he, he writes and directs animated movies. But when we first met, he was doing concept art for animated movies. And he was more of, um, I would, if you had asked me, oh, who's your husband or your boyfriend do, I would have been like, oh, he's a, an artist, Ill, illustrator, yeah, yeah. illustrator, artist. So he has published a couple of, um, He's done a couple of picture books, but um, he slowly became more interested over time in his career with the story side because he realized a lot of the movies he worked on, he was like, these stories are bad. Um, <laughs> and he wanted to write his own. And then he realized, I think he kind of realized, he, maybe he wouldn't say it, but that he he was always a storyteller first. And so I get help from him all the time now with brainstorming anything I do, but especially I've started to move into uh, movies too. Mm-hmm. So I I've, can't really talk about it, but I got hired to write a movie. And so obviously he helps me a ton because he's written a few scripts already and actually directed his own movie that he wrote. And it's really nice because I trust his, I just, tr- I trust his opinion mm-hmm. and um, we are able to talk about our our work without any kind of emotional, weird husband, wife thing. You know, I do sometimes bristle when I feel like he gets into director mode and I'm like, don't talk to me like, (laughs) (laughs) like one of your employees, you know, but otherwise I'm very open. I think it's also our personalities match because I'm a collaborative person. I'm not that precious Mm. with my own work. I have Mm -hmm. to say, not that that's a bad thing, but it's just not a quality of mine. I love, I'm an extrovert. I love getting a lot of readers. I like feedback. So I'm open to it. So I'm not, I don't bristle at like my husband giving me criticism. That's my goal is to be one of my goals is to be more open in that way. And less, um, you know, constantly shielding myself from anything critical or negative, yeah. <laughs> even if it's constructive, you know, it's funny. There's my very, very first guest of like episode one of this creative life 
who was also my collaborator on Rumi's, um, Tara Altabrando, she and her husband work a lot together on creative stuff. And he he doesn't work professionally in the creative fields, but he he's like her main reader and bouncing ideas off of and like troubleshooting and like talking about what she's doing in her work. And sometimes she would tell me some of the things he would say or the suggestions he would make. And I was just like, I would just like curl into a ball. (laughs) But like they have a vigorous conversation about that stuff and it's fine. And I think it would do me some good to be a little more resilient about those conversations that are constructive and friendly but even like the most constructive and friendly conversations around a work in progress are just hard for me I don't know Mm. no I understand that I personally can't read any reviews of my books even good ones uh I don't like knowing that other people have opinions on my work (laughs) even like uh, what do you think being an author is but I accept that reality but I do not need to see it Mm -hmm. um it's really hard but with Chris, um, if I trust you as a, you know, your taste or your, and, but I also trust you emotionally, you know, like mm-hmm. I know he knows me better than anyone and he would, he knows how to approach if he has criticism, you know, he wouldn't be like this, this is bad. You know, I'm not that tough. I one time had a beta reader who I didn't know very well and she just <laughs> ripped my manuscript to shreds. And I was like, and she had warned me like, oh, sorry, not everybody likes my style. I'm a little brutal. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's fine. And then I read it like, oh my God. And I got so angry and resentful. I'm like, in my head, I was saying all this petty stuff. And I'm like, okay, now I know I have a limit for the kind of criticism. <laughs> but also we didn't know each other that well, you know? So it was just like a bad uh, combination for me. But yeah, it's hard. It's because it's... I think a lot of writers are sensitive people, you know, I'm a mm-hmm. cancer too. And I'm a very, I am pretty sensitive, but I do like, I get a lot of um, energy from creative collaboration, which doesn't always mean that I like criticism. Well, that's, you know, I've grown I mean, I know a little tough to it. I've grown a little tough. Yeah. I can't specifically talk about your screenwriting project, but that's one of the things that has um, thwarted my screenwriting endeavors I have mm-hmm. a few scripts I've started and haven't finished. And it always gets to a point where I'm like, you know what I really need is a great collaborator or a great writing partner to bring different strengths to this that I don't have. And then I stop because I'm just, that'll never happen. Like it's, <laughs> it just seems like a much more collaborative form because I mean, the thing doesn't exist off the page without collaboration. So it makes sense that the mm-hmm. document itself would have a collaborative aspect to it you know you're it it feels more like you're um like the clay is still soft you know and like people are you're adding and shaping and taking away and like talking with people and showing it to them whereas I don't know with a book it feels different to me but but I recognize that need in myself for times when I where this thing works against me this thing of being precious or scared works against me in some context where like I could really use a collaborator Yeah. And not only a collaborator, but when you write a movie, there are so many goddamn opinions. Right. Right. You're like working with a whole team of people. Right. Because at least it's a collaborator. They're a writer or a storyteller. Right. So you there is an understanding. But then you've got these other people that are not that are not writers that have never finished writing a story from beginning to end. And you've got to 
take their opinions seriously too. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them are good, right? Um, I'm working with the two directors on this movie and they are friends of mine and they're really super creative and really fun, but they, they're not writers. So there's a lot of negotiation with me and them about that's a cool idea. We can't do it, you know, because I'm Mm -hmm. like, it just does not make sense uh, character wise or you know, uh, that just, it's too many details in this one scene. It gets dragged down. I know that would be fun, but we can't. And um, you've got to like kind of be tough too with other people, which it's, I, it's not really something that I am naturally good at, but I've had a lot of professional jobs in my life where it's made me kind of tough with that. So there's like a level of professionalism. So yeah, that's, I think that's good. That seems like it, an asset. It is because it like the two people I'm working with are men. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So there's a little bit of me having to assert myself a little bit, even though they're friends and they're very respectful. But yeah, it's it's an interesting process that I don't that I don't know if I'll want to do forever, but I'm really excited to to try it. Um yeah. and see if it's something that might work out because it's also so much less time than writing a novel, the yeah. amount of words. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. Um I, I don't think it's necessarily easier. I'm not going to say that because I feel like it's a little dismissive, but... Um, yeah, it's different. Yeah, it is it is very different. And I it's, it's been interesting. As someone who is collaborative, it's still a challenge for me. I don't know. I've had good experiences with my editors who are very mindful and respectful of uh, my books and my writing. And they're always very gentle in their suggestions and... You yeah, know, like, well, I think they know I think how to deal with this. <laughs> there's like an inti- intimacy yes. to editing a novel that I perceive from the outside would not be the same in working on a screenplay. Yeah, it's different. It's a, it's almost like I like to compare agents, you know, the agent relationship you have with your literary mm-hmm. agent versus your entertainment agent is so different. And in in of, what ways? Because, you know, I bet a lot of people who listen to this podcast are dabbling in or wanting to explore screenwriting or they're already doing it and um, or they're trying to figure out how to shift over. What What is that difference for you? I guess I can only speak for myself, but I have I have talked to other authors that have felt similarly. I think with your literary agent, it's so much more of like um, you're collaborating on your career together, mm-hmm. you know, and they are the first person they, that you go to for usually, right? If you have a question, if you're like, I hate, why is my marketing bad on my book? Mm-hmm. You go to your agent, <laughs> you talk to them, you talk shit. And then you, you know, you know, that's like, they're like the first line, right? Um, you trust them. There's like this level of trust with your career and your money and your contracts. Um, also their taste, hopefully, you know, mm-hmm. that you're, you trust that they like your book. This is a good book that will probably sell. I'm not like one of those people that talks to their agent all the time, but you, f- I feel you feel comfortable just asking them dumb questions, mm-hmm. right? Like they're the person that will absorb all of your insecurities and dumb questions and blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. Whereas with my entertainment agent who I love and she's very available and really warm and supportive too, but it feels more professional and it feels more like um, I don't ask her. We don't have like two hour long calls about my career you right, know, or right. all the wonderful ideas I have, um, <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, or I would never probably 
cry on the phone with my entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we've all done that. Not that I've ever like, done that with my agent. Oh yeah, yes, I have. Oh, yeah, yes. <laughs> you know, and um, and I personally wouldn't feel comfortable like complaining to my agent about so and so or like there's for me, I put more of a professional friend with her. Um, and when I have things completed or if things are underway, I I talk to her more, you know, it's, I don't mm-hmm. really incubate ideas with her in right, the right. early stages or anything like that. Um, but I know some people may have a different relationship and I also feel like self-conscious, like I don't want to ask dumb questions ever. <laughs> I always, I hear something and if I don't know it, I'm like, uh-huh, yes, sure. And then I text like three people I know that have done this before, you know, and I'm like, what does it mean when this is, you know, what is this term? Yeah, and, it's, this know. makes sense. I mean, I do, I do feel like books are, like we said, intimate. There's like intimacy and vulnerability are like two words that would come to mind with doing novels. And then with the filmmaking business, it's more like a big machine that that you're working with mm-hmm. and it feels less intimate and vulnerable. So going back to books and your books, do you have what you would call a process when writing a book? And if so, what is it? Tell me because I'm always shopping for other processes. God, me too. I, I get sick of my own. I just want to like, surely there's a better way. Well, I'm jealous like you have a solid process. I I guess kind of I do, but it feels like with every book and you know people say this every book feels like a new book or mm-hmm. like a first book for you. So, or for me. And so I I have but I have general things that I probably do with each book, which is I stew in the idea of it for a long time and I'm not like a you know people have great ideas when they go on walks or in the shower. I need to actually sit down with a notebook and write my ideas out. A lot of free form, you know, lists or, you know, the, I don't even know what it's called, uh, cloud. Oh, yeah. The uh, brainstorming. Yeah, cloud brainstorming yeah. type thing. I do a lot of that. Um, mind map. Yes, mind mapping. And then I, I watch a ton of movies and TV shows. I don't read books I because it's too long of a process. <laughs> I... I kind of know what I want to do. And then I try to find things that might help me as reference. So Mm -hmm. yeah, TV, TV shows and movies are usually my go-to, but I will often read like the first chapter of books too, that I'm trying to see like, Oh, how do they balance a tone or how did Mm -hmm. they approach this kind of plot? And I'll like read books on Amazon, like the first look type things that they have. Oh, right. They, look inside this book. Look inside uh-huh. this book. Yeah. Um, Cause I have, I have a lot of books. So I don't, it's not what I'm, I don't always have what I'm looking for. And then, so I do a lot of that before I actually, you know, try to figure out what I'm writing about. And a lot of times my books come to me, it used to be characters came to me first, but I don't know if it's because I, I've been working in, you know, tr- trying to write a movie and all this stuff that now I'm very plot inspired lately mm-hmm. um so i i do outline eventually and i try to do a very loose easy outline that is not that is very lows uh what's the word commitment you know how, I, how how long is that outline typically is it just like a couple pages of you like writing the story to yourself or is it more than that yeah the very first stage it's like a very broad 
short outline, just like, okay, will this work? This, you know, just to map out the story. Mm-hmm. And then I oftentimes get stuck in that stage. And, and if that happens, I start writing the book because then it'll help me figure out my characters and my voice. I'll just start without any expectation that this is what the actual book will be. I just kind of start writing because I love the, I love the beginning of books. I oh, love I can, an, I can make I love a, an opening. If I can make a career out of writing the first 40 pages right. of books. I know beginnings. And I actually really love writing endings too. Like I always have a pretty clear idea of where I want to end up. Um, but yeah, like most writers, I have a real hard time with the middle. The middle. Yeah. It's terrible. But I will often find that like, oh, once I do the fun part, which to me is the writing. And I am one of those people that love drafting versus revising too. So it it helps me. And then I will eventually be writing more detailed outlines as I go. So what I usually do is like, I'm stuck. I'm going to outline the next few chapters. Mm -hmm. We'll see if this goes to where I want it to go. And then I'll often just stop, write, outline, stop. Like I do that a lot. Um, And then I, when I start drafting, you know, I, (laughs) I'm slow and I am really bad at like a fast drafting and knowing that it'll be better later and just move on. Mm -hmm. I'm really bad at that. I edit myself constantly. I reread what I write like 5,000 times every time I sit down with the manuscript. Um, I've gotten better at drafting faster and being less committed to it. But is that better though? I mean, what, why are you assigning a value to it? Like that it's. Oh, purely for <laughs> deadline, you know. Oh, right. You know, right, right. Yeah, yeah. For keeping I, a career going. <laughs> yes, exactly. Cause I realized, oh shit. Like the way that I, that I love writing books is not, I can't do it if I'm trying to hit these deadlines. Yeah. So I've had to learn like, okay. Cause I used to be against outlining too, but now I'm like, oh, it actually helps me, you know, at least hurry up. I'm and trying get to become down. an outliner. It's, ugh, it's not fun. It's like the most boring part of the whole thing in my some opinion. people love it I don't know. I know I know it's it's not my thing and so that's why I love drafting because I'm like oh it's just like all for me drafting is like where all the fun magical things happen whereas a lot of other writers their drafting part is so you know they're it's just like the hard work of getting the story down and they can do the fun part of polishing later when I am drafting and there are moments I'm like oh I do like writing <laughs> you know but it's only when it feels good and when you're not um hating what you write which is 80 percent of the time I think for a lot of us um yeah it, it is normal and I, and I I'm working with um this one writer who I'm sort of consulting with and she's working on uh getting ready to you know do a revision of this big book she just wrote. And I think a lot of people, I had this too, in your mind, you're like, well, when I am really doing it, it's going to feel good. And if it's, if it feels terrible, then there must be something wrong and I need to change that. And I was like, you know what? (laughs) In my 15 years of doing this, like I know a lot of writers. Okay. (laughs) I've talked to a lot of writers and what you're describing about the feeling of like, it's just drudgery. And then like, there'll be once in a while, it feels really good. I'm like, that's accurate. I mean, there's no lie there. That's kind of how it is. And and again, not speaking for everyone. I'm sure some people don't feel that way. But anecdotally speaking, most writers I know describe what you're describing, which Same. is like, it's hard. And it's like 80% just sort of making yourself do it. Yeah. And, and then there's great moments. There are great moments. And but it's 
I don't know. I'm jealous of writers who just love writing. Like it's an enjoyable feeling. Um, but yeah, it's like that Dorothy uh, Parker quote. I hate writing. I love having written because mm-hmm. I think that's why we keep going back to it because when you're done, you're like, it's the best feeling in the world, you know, um, to have whatever 75,000 words. And you're like, I can't believe I did that. <laughs> yeah. And to see it come to fruition of like, you've created a world, you've created people that feel real, mm-hmm. you've created an emotional experience and an intellectual experience or whatever your goal is with the story. And it feels good. And it's good yeah. to allow, allow yourself that. Um, you, we mentioned you have like a pretty new, he's not that new anymore. The baby. <laughs> I <laughs> mean, no longer a newborn, but time is meaningless, but fresh. how old is he now? He's actually turning five months tomorrow. Oh, that's still pretty. Yeah, that's still pretty new. Yeah. So how, how has this fresh, freshly baked human changed and affected your writing routines or the emotions of it or just like your tiredness, your energy? How's that going? <sighs> Man, I mean, I'm going to be honest. Like, I just don't really write that much anymore. It's had, Because for me, writing takes so much you need to have long stretches. I mean, I do. I need to have long stretches of time to even warm up. So I've barely had that. However, it's slowly but surely starting because he's older. And um, as I've mentioned, my mom helps out. And so during this pandemic, like it was a kind of a hard thing for me to decide, do I want to bubble with my parents who are older and have the childcare take that risk, but it totally was worth it for us because mm. my husband and I work from home. We don't go anywhere. My parents certainly never go anywhere. They're like really strict. You know, it's, we're really lucky because so many of my friends that had babies during this pandemic have had to do everything absolutely alone and they're working full time. Man. Uh, yeah. And it's just the story of a lot of people. It yeah. is completely inconceivable for me who is living it. I'm like, I, my mom comes over and she will watch him for the full work day if I need it. Mm-hmm. And I still have a hard time like really concentrating because I can feel him in the house. I can hear him. And, mm-hmm. and then I'm like, Oh shoot. I forgot to tell my mom that he needs to nap at this. You know, you know, there's just so many things. It's really hard to concentrate and writing for me is, it's so I'm a very high maintenance writer. Like I used to joke, people are always like, Oh, I managed to write. I brought my laptop to my kid's piano <laughs> lesson and I'm in the car yeah. writing. And I'm like, what? No, because I couldn't do that. <laughs> I can't. I, or people are like, Oh, I just started writing on my phone through like a dictation. I'm like, Oh my Lord, that I have to be at my desk or like at a coffee shop with a huge table or my dining room table with everything clean too. I can't have a master on me and I need headphones and I need specific music and I need to have a drink so that I don't get distracted by the need for a drink. I need to have a hot beverage, you need a cold beverage, you need a lot of table, you need every like slippers in case your feet get cold. Like you have to have everything. I have to have everything. I can't like be distracted even for one second. And then I also need accountability. So I learned that I'm really bad at whole, (laughs) basically I realized that I thought I had, um, ADHD for a while because I talked about it with my therapist. I was telling her, I just can't actually, I've never been good at 
sitting down with one task and concentrating on it, it's almost impossible for me. And so I have this job that requires that. Mm -hmm. And it's the worst job in the world for me. But I just really, for some reason, this is what I'm good at. And so I, and she said, oh, I don't think you have ADHD, but you have an anxiety disorder. And one of the ways that shows itself with people is you are constantly making connections in your brain. So it's hard for you to concentrate on one thing, but in a way that's actually what makes you really creative too, because you're able to constantly make these connections and be thinking about one idea brings you another idea. And it makes for really, makes for really, um, creative people sometimes, but she says, yes, the downside is you have a hard time sitting there and just getting the work done. And so we figured out, like, I need a lot of accountability because of my personality. I'm driven by pleasing other people and deadlines and being accountable. So I have writer friends that I will write with online every, it used to be in person. We'd go to coffee shops and we'd be like 30 minute sprints. And I would get so much more work done in the two yeah. hours I sat yeah. in a coffee shop than the eight hours I sat at my desk alone. So uh, n- now I do that online because of, you know, pandemic. And thank you for sharing what your therapist told you, because that was just really helpful for me to hear. I related to so much of what you just said, and it helped me see like, yeah, that is what the, about how the, your brain is always making connections. And mm-hmm. sometimes the anxiety part is like, you're catastrophizing and going like, what if this? And then what if that? And then that's going to lead to X, but that's also a characteristic of storytelling, you know? So that was very, it blew my mind. She told me uh, that therapist, she was great. Yeah. She, she was like, yeah, uh, I don't think you, it's part of your anxiety, which I didn't know. That was also a symptom of anxiety disorder. I just thought, oh, I'm really bad at concentrating on stuff, Mm. you know? And she says, no, the brain that keeps you up at night because it's thinking it's bouncing from one horrible thing to another is also (laughs) the thing that gives you ideas. (laughs) That's, uh, I love that. That's going to be a great takeaway for this app. Um, Okay. I'm winding down to a couple questions that I try and ask everybody who comes on the podcast, um, which is what is the one, and maybe it's, maybe it's anxiety and focus, but sort of the one obstacle that you have to be most careful of in your process. So that could be something internal happening, self-doubt, anxiety, envy, whatever, or just procrastination or just feelings about the business. Like what's your main, like Achilles heel in your process? Or, or in your writing life or mm-hmm. such a good question. I feel like I have so many. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know why I say like, what's your one? Because obviously we, we all have a, a variety to choose from. Yeah. But you know what? I, I definitely do think it's the concentration thing of just sitting and doing the work, um, just getting into the headspace. I think I can make a lot of excuses. Like I told you, I need the perfect environment to write in, but really I just have to start. You know, mm-hmm. and um, so that is often the obstacle. And so having some tools to deal with that has really helped me. But it's just hard for me to do the work yeah. to like make that first step. Um, I'm not I don't have a lot of self-doubt. I mean, I do have self-doubt, but it's that's not the thing that stops me. Yeah, Usually yeah. it's just like just doing it Sit down and do the freaking work. Oh, you man. Know? That resonates. Yeah. Um, how about like a piece of culture that's helping you through this year or last year, uh, oh like some pop gosh. culture, high culture, books, TV, music, a show you love, whatever. 
You know, there's so much because when I think about this past year, I am so grateful. Um, obviously, essential workers. Mm-hmm. But for me, like all the creators that came out with content that was soothing and fun, this year was really the thing that saved me. So I was pregnant, you know, for most of the pandemic, most of last year. Mm-hmm. And so physically, I felt like crap, but then also the world was scary. Um, I consumed so much TV. Um, I watched, let's see, Ted Lasso was a highlight because it's just, mm-hmm. I'm starting to rewatch it. I started The Great British Bake Off. Like, I'm basically looking for soothing things. And I read yeah. a lot of romance novels, which are my go to for cozy. Like, it also helps me because it's, what I like to read before I go to bed. It's just like a little ritual that really calms me down. And I really like historical romance novels. So I really loved Bridgerton, like everybody. And I went back to, as far as like music, I started just listening to everything that that always comforted me. I wasn't looking for new stuff, but I ended up looking at my Spotify, you know, the year end. I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. all I did was listen to Taylor Swift and <laughs> BTS. Like, good God. But I'm like, you know what? That's what I wanted to listen to. That was like calming. It was like a, for me, like not simplicity. I feel like that's being snobbish about. Yeah, you don't want to undersell that no. type of stuff. But I know, I know what you're saying. It, it's Swift. What she does for me is she reminds me of being a teenager in your own emotions, mm-hmm. right? Which is really helpful for me, right? In YA. Yeah. Yeah. And then BTS is just there's just happy, fun, you know, good vibes. And that's yeah, like, I, it has a chemical, it has like a biochemical impact to just like does. feel joy, you know, or laugh. I mean, for me, it's been, this is like the year I discovered, you know, really late because I'm old TikTok and just watching people just be ridiculous and hilarious. People are so funny. Gosh, see, you're <laughs> way cooler than me because TikTok is, I'm like, I don't understand, but I love, I make my like cooler younger friends send me their favorites sometimes because I'm like send me your favorite TikToks yeah, yeah. they're like okay so I'm like I don't want to actually go on the app I don't understand it <laughs> and then they send it to me I'm like yeah the, the, TikTok was like a blessing I feel like just like the just, young it people just, it was so, so much hilarious. I, I kept hearing how because all I heard about it was the negative like I didn't understand what was going on in politics or international relations that made TikTok bad. And my husband was like, oh, it's bad. And I'm like, I don't know. And I'm (laughs) sure like I'm I need to research it before I talk about it. So I won't say anything. But (laughs) I was just like I had downloaded it once. And like you, I was like, what is this? And then I deleted (laughs) deleted the app. (laughs) And then I was like, I'm going to try this again because I wanted to learn how to use it. I just wanted to learn it and understand like the language of it and the vibe of it. So I watched it for just like a month. I just like would open it a couple times a day and just watch and start to understand how it worked and what the sense of humor was and what the voice of it was. And and at least the people that I came across in my browsing, it was just so much joy. Even when people were being making a statement or talking about things they were passionate about, there was just a lot of joy in the creation of these little 60 second videos and so much creativity that I found it not only like fun and something that made me laugh, but inspiring, like creatively inspiring too. It is because I, you know, the there's like an art to the good, like a perfect TikTok, you know, mm-hmm. that is new to this medium. It's really 
it makes me feel old, but it also makes me feel like very excited for, you know, people, for young people. You know, I just feel like, oh, there's so many creative ways. And some of them are so funny that I think about how comedians that do stand up, I'm like, you guys are not funny. None exactly. of you are as funny as this teenager on TikTok right now. <laughs> exactly. Like, why would they watch Saturday Night Live when there's these people that are so originally creative and funny in the way they do their characters on TikTok and their skits and memes and and the the way they use music it's yeah and the great. editing the like quick editing the that editing TikTok is so does, good oh so funny to me but yeah i i totally understand i feel like you are not alone so many people love TikTok and got a lot well, of comfort from it. A, a lot of the us oldies are starting to get we're probably gonna ruin it for all the like know, they're like oh, young no, people are here. like well that's the end of TikTok I, <laughs> I heard a 50 year old on a podcast say she loved it it's no, they're over like, they're like the young adult authors <laughs> found it bye <laughs> oh Maureen thank you so much it's been so great oh, to talk thank you where this can people find nice... out more about you and your books they can find it on my website maureengo.com and I am also on Twitter and Instagram pretty regularly my handle for both is just my name m-a-u-r-e-n-e g-o-o maureengo um, I'm pretty active on both and I like to update my Twitter and Instagram more than my website so that hopefully I will sense. have news about things coming out that I have been slowly working on while I have a baby yeah, I'm excited when you're able to share to hear more about your film project, too. Yeah, I hope it gets to a phase where I can share it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again. And thank you to uh, listeners out there and for liking and sharing the podcast and giving it five star ratings on iTunes. That's always really helpful. Um, thank you to Substack subscribers. Thank you to Dave Connes for the theme music. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Head on over to thiscreativelife.substack.com for more about the show if you want to know more and get all the notes and um, hang in there. Stay safe. Welcome to a new administration. I'm glad you're here.